Hi, everybody. It's John Dickerson. Welcome or welcome back to the Connection Point podcast. At the end of this episode, I'd encourage you to take a moment and check out cp.news on your web browser. Connection Point is a church that is fully online, and you can follow Jesus one day at a time from anywhere in the world with us. Well, I pray this message inspires you and challenges you today to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, should we thank God for what he's doing? It's, it's hard to believe, but the number of folks on an average weekend here now versus a year ago is the size of what most people would call a pretty big church. And so that's why we're asking you, uh, first of all, if you're one of those, we're just so glad you're here, and our heart is just to connect you to God. And if you call this place home, we want to make sure that there's always a seat for folks who are coming in. And so actually, right before this service, I got to uh, be with a family backstage. They were baptized here right before this service started. The mom and dad were baptized, and then they got to baptize their two precious daughters who are right about the age of my middle daughter. And as I was praying with them, I was just thinking, this is what it's all about. There's just hundreds of these precious families right around us here. And we want to make sure that any time a family like that sets foot in here to seek God, that there's a seat for them. And so two ways you can be part of that, as Denise mentioned, one, you could join me and Pastor Ron and Denise and others as we launch this Thursday night service. Me and Ron will be there live every week. It'll have everything that a Sunday morning has. It'll actually be the first service of the weekend, right before the weekend. So uh, if you can make Thursday nights, that'd be awesome. And if you can serve Thursday nights, that'd be awesome. And then if you live in the Danville, Avon area, like Denise said, uh, it's a great opportunity. The Avon location has more than doubled in nine months, 12 new believer baptisms in that time. And so uh, don't miss out on what God's doing right now. Speaking of what God's doing, here's a picture of some of our teens over this weekend. Have you heard this word revival? Have you heard that word? (laughs) Revival is something that the Spirit of God does, uh, and it very often starts with the younger generation, and that's been one of our prayers in our movement, is to raise the strongest generation. We want to prepare our sons and daughters to live for the Lord, to know who they are in Christ, and it was just incredible to hear from some of our youth leaders about what God is doing in the hearts of many of our high school students. And what one of them told me is, I've never seen our our high school students so authentically engaged in worship as they are right now. So God is is working, uh, and I just want to make sure as a, a leader that you don't miss it, that you've got your eyes open to it and that you can see what he's doing. Well, speaking of how God's working, last week, Pastor Ron, our teaching pastor, gave a message on suffering. It's one of the best that I've ever heard. Can we just give a thank you to Pastor Ron for him bringing his gifts here and serving us? As we go through this series, um, it's about pain and suffering. And if you're our guest, you're like, wow, do they talk about this every week? No, not necessarily. But we're in this six-week series because we all have pain in our lives. And this series is really answering the question, how do you encounter God? How do you experience him when life is hard? And so if you missed last week's message or part one, those are both available at cp.news. Also, there's an audio book that goes along with this series. That book is available for free at that same link. So if you know someone who's laying in a hospital bed or going through a divorce or got a you know, cancer diagnosis or some difficult thing, send them that link to that audio book. They can listen to that anytime anywhere and get some of these words of comfort. Well, today we're going to talk about those times when what you hope for and what happens are two different things. And I'll start with a time that happened in my life that you're welcome to laugh at me. This is when I was a nerdy, gangly, 15-year-old teenage boy living in the Siberian wilderness known as Michigan. And It was usually winter in Michigan, but there'd be like a day or two in July where the sun would come out. And this happened on one of those days. I was working a summer job as a janitor with six other guys. We're all 15 or 16 years old. And uh, we finished all of our taking out the trash and scrubbing the toilets and all of our janitorial duties. And so we all piled into my buddy Donnie, his Oldsmobile sedan. It was an old car, but he had just gotten it. He was very excited. We were all excited because Donnie was the only one with a driver's license. So three guys across on the front bench seat, four of us in the back seat, and we're cruising around town as these 15 and 16-year-olds. And my buddy, Nate, 
had this idea that we should all get our super soaker squirt guns and we should go around town and do some super soaker drive-bys. This is like about the whitest, most rural thing you could come up with, but to us, it seemed like a great idea at the time. So Nate had the idea because he had this over-the-top super soaker, has a backpack with it, you pump it about 50 times, it builds up the pressure, then you hit the trigger and boom, like a fire department quantity of water blasts out. So Nate is riding shotgun. That's the front passenger seat. He's got this big old super soaker gun hanging out the side. The backpack is on the ground. The rest of us have our little ones, and we're driving around. And for the most part, we're hitting mailboxes, a car that has its windows up, pretty innocent stuff. Then we find ourselves at a stoplight. We're in the left-hand turn lane, and up ahead of us to go straight is a lowered Chevy Monte Carlo with rims and the base is thumping and the windows are down. And Nate has a perfect line on it. And we hear Nate make this kind of primitive grunting sound. He's like, ha ha ha. And then we watch in almost in slow motion, this blast of water goes from his gun perfectly aimed right in the driver's window of this Monte Carlo all over the dashboard. Next thing we see is those little white reverse lights. And then we see smoke from the tires. This car comes screeching back. And it's at this moment that Nate and the rest of us realize that we are blocked in. There's a car in front of us. There's a car behind us. We, we can't move. This big dude gets out of the Monte Carlo. Big guy. Nate starts fiddling with the power window button. And it's in this moment that Nate realizes that this power window on Donnie's car doesn't really work. It's like the kind, have you ever had the kind where you push the button and it's like, <laughs> Now, permission to laugh at what happens next because Nate survived, he's alive today. We all, we all made it through this, but this big dude gets out of the Monte Carlo. He just leans on the roof of Donnie's Oldsmobile, and he just starts like haymaker punching Nate in the face. <laughs> and the four of us are sitting in the back, just like, what's going on? Donnie's at the steering wheel, and he's just like <laughs> frozen. Donnie's like paralyzed. The car's actually clear out ahead of us, and Donnie's still just sitting there. And we're finally like, Donnie, go, go, go. And Donnie floors it, and we get out of there. We all survived. Funniest thing about the story is that as the guy was punching Nate, he wet his pants, <laughs> which I think is the ultimate poetic justice, right? Like you're going around town shooting a squirt gun at people and uh, you get a little bit beat up and, and wet yourself. Anyhow, sometimes life does not go as planned and there are sometimes we look back and we laugh. All my buddies and I laugh at that now. There's other times it doesn't go as planned and... Um, and there's nothing to laugh about at all. In 2009, Mel and I, my wife, we had just been married uh, for about six months when she whispered to me, I'm pregnant. And at first, oh my goodness, you talk about a roller coaster of emotions. At first, I was like, I am not ready for this. I'm not ready to be a dad. We're not ready to have kids. But as the days and the weeks passed, and as Mel and I processed this together, for me, the fear started to turn into this excitement of like, wow, we, we've created something together. And there's this little life in her womb. And, and the fear turned to excitement, turned to joy. And the weeks passed. And then one day I was sitting at my office. I was still a writer in the news industry at the time. And I was typing away doing my nerdy stuff. And I got a phone call from Mel. She said, I'm having these really severe cramps. Um, I'm in a lot of pain. I think something's wrong. So I run to my car and hurry home. As I'm driving home, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be emotionally like, like the rock. Like I'm just going to be like stable so that she can feel whatever she needs to feel, cry, whatever. And I'm, I'm just going to be like sturdy and stable for her. I got home and Mel was balled up on our little couch there, just in severe pain. And um, 
Strangest thing, we lived in Scottsdale, Arizona, where it never rains, started to thunderstorm. Uh, Actually, then the electricity went out. So I'm trying to light these little candles around the house. Mel's just going through this severe pain. Eventually, that little life left her womb, and um, her mom came over, and she and her mom went to the hospital, Um, but I had in my hands this little this little being, tiny, tiny little start of a body. You could see the head. You could see where the eyes were starting. And once Mel and her mom left and I closed the door to the bathroom in the house, even though I was all alone, I was standing there with this little thing in my hands and these just heaving sobs took over me. I mean, I had never cried like that in my life. I've never cried like that since. And it was this moment where it just felt totally hopeless. I didn't know how to help my wife through it. I didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't know what the future meant for us in our marriage, as far as like marriage and family. And just, it was this moment that just seemed totally hopeless. I, I don't know if you can relate to that feeling of some kind of grief, some kind of tragedy, some kind of difficulty that just feels hopeless. I know in a room this size and with a movement our size, some of you this weekend, you walked into this message and that's where you're at right now. Others of you, right now, life's, life's not too bad. But, but you know there will be times when it gets worse. And so we're going to wrestle with this question today. What can you do? What can you do when your suffering seems hopeless? What can you do when it feels endless? Because there's some sufferings that come into our life and we just kind of know like, well, I've got the flu and I just have to rest a few days. But there's other things, Parkinson's, cancer, divorce, a loss of a loved one. There's other things that just, that there's, there's no clear fix. What, what can you do? And if the Bible speaks to this, if God tells you, here's what you can do when your suffering seems and feels hopeless, would you want to know what God says? Well, that's what we're doing in this series. We're, we're looking because God actually gives you hundreds of answers to this question. And one of the reasons I get really passionate about this series is early on in my Christian life, when I would ask things like, if God's good, why is there pain? Or what are we supposed to do when we're hurting? I had some pastors who were well-intentioned, but they'd say things like, well, there's just some things we'll never know till we get to heaven. Well, I agree, but I also felt like this is a really big book. It has to say something about this. And what I've found in my life is it says dozens of things. And my prayer for you in this series, part of why it's six weeks, is that we're introducing you to maybe 10 of the hundreds of answers to these kinds of questions. And and I just want to encourage you, be here with us every week because one of these answers will be the one that resonates with you right now in your life. And I want to take you into one that for me, at first seemed kind of distant, but then when I went through deeper level suffering, today's answers out of Romans chapter 8 became something for me that just changed the way I suffer, changed my entire view on suffering. It's given me a hope that I didn't otherwise know, and I'm excited to introduce you to it. Here's what God's Word says As it answers this question, Romans 8 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. Really unique verse. And I just want you to know, I'm going to try not to take too long on this, but... When, when this says, if we are children, first of all, God's not demeaning you. This is a phrase that's used in the Bible to refer to those who've believed in Jesus. So if you're here and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, these promises we're going to hear today don't yet apply to you. However, God invites you. You can become adopted into the family of God at any moment. You don't have to pay money. You don't have to do good deeds. You simply repent and believe. Repent meaning Uh, God, I've sinned or I've got problems in my life. I need your help. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died for me and rose again. The moment you repent and believe from the heart, you get adopted into the family of God. And so this is what God means by 
we are children. This word heirs is someone who has an inheritance. So maybe in this world, you don't have any inheritance. If you're a follower of Jesus, you do. And your inheritance actually is co-heir with Christ who ultimately will own everything in eternity. And here's the real heart of this chapter and the heart of what we're going to learn today. Verse 18, I consider, this is the word of God, that our present sufferings, plural, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What does this mean? Well, the glory that will be revealed in us, glory is kind of like a church word, right? You don't often hear that anymore, glory. Glory is, um, boy, it's, it's so hard to describe because it's something we haven't fully experienced. So if you think of the best pleasure you've ever had in life, the things you're most attracted to, the most fulfillment, the most wonder, Scripture says every good and perfect gift comes from above. Everything good you've ever experienced in your life is from God and is a, a small sliver of what being in his glory will be like. It's not like we're going to be these, you know, uh, figurine angels, you know, like precious moment angels sitting on a, a mantle and God's just this bright light and we're all like, wow, you know. It's going to be like ecstasy, fulfillment, wonder, splendor, things you've never tasted, colors you've never seen. It, and in heaven, it says there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. I mean, there's going to be waterfalls. There's food to eat. You have a body that never gets sick. Like, it's going to be amazing. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And what he says is this, I consider that that future state that all of us believers will be in, it's not even worth comparing to all of our sufferings combined. So last week, you heard some of Ron's sufferings. Week one, you heard some of my sufferings. Put all those together. Take all of your sufferings, all the suffering in your life right now, in your whole lifetime, in your whole family, add those in. Add in the 10,000 or so people who would call this church home. Add all those sufferings. Then add all the believers from church history, Christians who were fed to lions in Colosseums, Christians in the Soviet Union who were marched out into the snow to freeze to death because they wouldn't denounce Christ. You add up all these sufferings, all of them, it's immense more than we could comprehend. All this suffering is on one side of the scale, and our future status of wonder and glory in the presence of God is on the other. And here's what God's saying. You might think, oh, all our sufferings, we'll get to heaven and we'll look back and they'll be even, and we'll be like, well, it was worth going through all that because now we're here. And what God says is, no, they're not even. You're going to get to heaven, and your future state is so wonderful, it outweighs, it surpasses all of your collective suffering combined. Now, this takes deep faith to, to grasp this. And what I would encourage you, because we're going to go into what does this mean, is just right now in your spirit, say, God, I want to understand this. Holy Spirit, will you help me understand this? God, where I lack faith, would you give me faith to believe this? Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That, when's that going to happen? When Jesus returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is going to come again. When he returns a second time, he's not going to be a little baby in a manger or a suffering servant. He's going to be a righteous judge, King of kings, Lord of lords. He's going to judge evil and sin. He's going to throw Satan and the demons in the lake of fire. And he's going to reveal all the true believers who are his children and have a place in heaven. That's what this is talking about. Verse 22 we know that the whole creation, so planet Earth itself, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Think about this. This was written 2,000 years ago before they knew about tectonic plates. But the Bible says in Genesis, we'll talk about this next week, that when Adam and Eve sinned and Satan invaded planet Earth, Earth itself is contaminated and broken. So every earthquake, every tsunami is a shifting of these giant plates underneath the ground called tectonic plates. Did you know that now seismologists, they, they've put like stethoscope kind of things on the earth and it groans. But this was written 2,000 years ago before they knew any of that. The earth is groaning, waiting for Jesus to return and reveal the new heaven and the new earth and take his people to a place where there's no sin, no evil, no Satan, no death, no cancer, no suffering. 
Um, can we just get like an amen for that truth of God, that that's our future? Verse 23 says this, we believers also groan as you grow in God and you read his word and the Holy Spirit is in you, there will be times where you see uh, war or racism or you meet a child who's been abused or a teenage boy whose dad abandoned him and something in you just says, this isn't right. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. That's what Paul's talking about here. We also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste. So what does the Holy Spirit give you? And by the way, the moment you believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to live in you. You'll learn how to walk with him, and he gives you joy, peace, patience. So in this broken world, we're in this weird state where we grieve sin and brokenness, but we have a joy and a peace because we know that Christ is going to work it all out. For we long for our bodies, which are broken by sin, to be released from sin. And when we go through chronic illness, we long for our bodies to be released from suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights. That's that day when Christ returns our full rights as his adopted children, including new bodies that never age, don't have pain sensors, don't need tear ducts. For in this hope we were saved. Really interesting verse, because when you trust in Jesus, you unlock hundreds, maybe thousands of hopes. There's the hope that God hears your prayer. There's the hope that God can miraculously heal. There's all these hopes. But what Paul is saying here is like the deepest hope for when you go through the deepest suffering is not just that things will get a little better in this world, it's that God's got a whole other world prepared for you. And I warned you, this one's a little deeper. The second half of verse 24, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Because Paul knew we'd read that and be like, we'd be like, well, I can't see it. I don't know if I can believe it. He's like, well, keep in mind, you know, when you're surprising your kids to go to Disney World, if they've never been, like, they're hopeful. And then once they're there, they're there. But the hope is the leading up. And that's kind of where we're at. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. There's this theme of endurance, perseverance, patience as your faith matures. And I'm seeing this right now. There's a brother in our church going through cancer, and I'm watching him patiently endure. A brother in our church with Parkinson's disease, I'm watching him patiently endure. So this question, what can you do when your suffering seems endless or hopeless? Well, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you can remind yourself that someday your present suffering will be a distant memory. This overlaps a little bit with what we learned week one. We're going to go deeper into this, and you're going to hear three things. I'm going to give you these three anchors to secure a suffering soul. And at face value, they're going to sound like I'm saying the same thing three different times. But actually, it's like looking at it from three different angles. We're going a little deeper, and I think God's going to give you something today that perhaps you've never fully understood in your suffering. And the first is this. You will be rescued out of your suffering. So this isn't simply that your suffering will end, but Jesus is going to rescue you or deliver you out of whatever you're going through right now. He might deliver you out of it in this life, but ultimately when he returns or calls you home, he's going to deliver you for good from all the pain of this world. Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So when I was in college, I... Uh, had a buddy who was an heir to a pretty big fortune. So his inheritance was $20 million. Not bad, right? <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind being a, an heir of $20 million. That'd be great. Here's the way his parents had set it up. He didn't get any of it until he was 25. And even then, it like would sort of unlock in little portions throughout his life. So when we were all college students... He was just like the rest of us in that he was eating the same ramen noodles, getting the same, you could get a, a large pizza from Papa John's for $5, right? Like he's eating all the same stuff as us. He's working the same kind of jobs as us. This is what his parents wanted for him because they didn't want him to be a trust fund kid. So he lived just like us. And yet, he always knew in the back of his mind, I remember thinking like, boy, it'd be nice to know 
if I fall flat on my face with this whole adult life thing, that I'll still be all set. He was already an heir, but he was not yet in possession of his inheritance. Does that make sense? Now, that's where you are in your life story of eternity. You're already an heir, but you've not yet taken possession of it. In fact, I want to introduce you to this idea called the tension of the already not yet. This is a a breakthrough understanding to really grasp Genesis to Revelation. What does God say about suffering? Very important to understand that you're already an heir, but you're not yet in possession. And we're going to learn some other already not yet's. God gives us a number of pictures of this. One picture would be God's chosen people, the Israelites, when they were enslaved in Egypt. And Egypt is a picture of this broken world system. In fact, the Bible says that until we trust in Jesus, we're all enslaved to sin. We don't have the power to say no to sin. So by the way, when you've got friends who aren't yet believers, don't stress on getting them to quit sinning. They can't. We can't. Only Jesus sets us free from sin. And just like God used Moses to deliver his people out of slavery to a promised land, God uses Jesus to deliver us out of sin to a promised land, heaven. But what did the Israelites have to go to go through to get from Egypt to the promised land? They had to go through the wilderness for 40 years. And this is a picture in your life on earth as a follower of Jesus, there will be seasons of wilderness And there will be times of joy, you know, weddings and sunrises and births and wonderful things. But ultimately, when we really get to the new heaven and the new earth, we'll look back and we'll realize that our highest moments on earth were a wilderness compared to what our future state is. So God's people already, he said, the promised land is yours, but they were not yet in possession of it. You see the already, not yet? The already, Not yet. Someday your present suffering will be a distant memory. Look at the second half of this verse. If indeed we share in Christ's sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Did you know that Jesus has tasted your suffering? Whether what you're going through right now is physical in your body, emotional, relational, spiritual, Jesus left the comfort of heaven, and he came down into our wilderness for 33 years. And then ultimately, when he went to the cross, he carried our shame. So he went through suffering on his path to glory. And now as we follow him through this earth, we'll have times when we also suffer. So when we suffer, it shouldn't shake our faith. The Bible prepares us for it. There's some churches and pastors who make it sound like, hey, if you believe in Jesus, it's just up and to the right for the rest of your life. Everything just gets better. Now, it's true that as you apply the word of God to your life, it'll change your character and that will help your marriage, that will help your career. There are a ton of benefits. But it's also true that Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And this is why it's important that we teach the whole context of God's word. Let me give you another picture of the already, not yet. The already not yet. It's a true story of a World War II hero named Louis Zamperini. Who's, here's Louis in the 1930s. He was a track and field star from Southern California. He ran in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Germany. And then he, uh, World War II broke out. You know, Germany and Japan attack everyone else, and it's this big world war. Louis gets drafted into the U.S. Army. And one day, uh, he's flying in a B-24 bomber over the Pacific Ocean, and a Japanese ship shoots down their plane, crashes in the ocean. Louis survives. He's on a life raft out in the water with two other guys. They're out there for like 30 days. Finally, they see an airplane. They think we're saved. Well, it's a Japanese airplane. And they get taken to one of these Japanese prisoner of war camps. Now, if you're not familiar with World War II history, these camps were horrific. Most of them were in kind of tropical jungle locations, and so you had mosquitoes and all these tropical diseases. But the worst thing really was um, the starvation. Because as the war dragged on, Japan didn't have enough food for its own soldiers and its own people, but the leaders of Japan would not surrender. And so these American prisoners of war and the allied prisoners of war, they start literally starving to death in these camps. And many, many, many of them died. So Louis watches 
these other inmates who he becomes friends with, he watches them die. In fact, uh, once the war ended, if you've got a queasy stomach, you might not look uh, at this next picture, but this is uh, how starved prisoners of war in the Japanese prison camps were. So this is the status of Louis's body after about three years in these Japanese prison camps. But Louis, as a really high-functioning athlete, had this just strong mental resolve. He kept his hope, and he was like, the war's going to end eventually. We're going to win. I'll get back home. I'll eat again. I'll train again, and I'll still go to the next Olympics. That was, that's what kept him going. Then one day, one of these really sadistic prison guards takes his rifle, and with the butt of the rifle, he jams Louis in the leg, and Louis hears the, the tendons pop and snap. And in that moment, he knows, like, I'm never running again. And he loses all hope. And he lays there in his little cot, and he starts to just deteriorate mentally. And as he does, his immune system goes down. He starts to get sick. There's this disease called beriberi that most of the guys were dying from. And he realizes he's got the disease, and he has maybe two weeks to live. And here's what's really, really interesting about this moment in Louis's life. When the suffering was at its worst and he couldn't go on, ironically, Japan had surrendered. So if you know your history, you know, sadly, the U.S. had to drop the atomic bomb because Japan just wouldn't surrender. The Japanese leaders surrender, but the prison guards they don't know what to do. They're not going to like go to all the American POWs and be like, here, you guys take the guns. Let's switch places. They don't know where to go. So the prison guards just keep doing what they've always done. So Louis and these other prisoners, there's this period of about 10 days where they're actually victors, but they, ha they haven't been told yet. And the guards are still acting like they're in charge. Now, that is very much, that's the already not yet. Are you hearing the already not yet? Already victors, but not yet home. Already victors, but not yet healed. Already victors, but not yet fed. Now, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, the sadistic prison guards of planet Earth, Satan and his hosts, knew that they're defeated. They know they're defeated. But they don't want you to know. And until Christ returns, they're still marching around with their weapons the New Testament describes Satan as still the prince of this world until Christ returns, and then he's going to sentence him to the lake of fire. So Satan's already defeated, already judged, but he's not yet sentenced. I know this is, this is a lot, but hang in there with me. Hebrews 2 says this, that Jesus destroyed Satan who held the power of death. And then verse 15, Jesus did this to set free us who all our lives has, have lived as slaves to the fear of dying. Isn't that true? We're all afraid of dying. Humanity's afraid of dying. We die because of what Satan has done to the world. He holds people in slavery through sin and the fear of dying. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, proved that he defeats all of that. But look at verse 8 of this same chapter in Hebrews. It says, yet at present, right now, we do not see everything subject to Christ, right? If everything was under Christ on planet Earth, there wouldn't be rape, there wouldn't be war, there wouldn't be famine, there wouldn't be starvation, there wouldn't be injustice and racism. So when we gather with other believers, we taste that God is in us and he's alive and he's working, but then we look out at the world and we say, but, but wait, this world is still, Satan's still active, we're victors, but we're not yet home. We're victors, but we're still in enemy territory. Okay, I'm going to give you the second anchor, and we'll keep tying all this together. Your suffering will end. Your suffering will end as a follower of Jesus. You can claim this in an active way. And here's what this looked like for Louis and those other prisoners of war. As they survived in that Japanese prison camp, their hope wasn't, well, I hope the food will get better, or I hope they'll send us a doctor or I hope the prison guards will get nicer. They only had one hope. Their hope was, was this, that they would look up in the sky and they'd see the sun glinting off of the polished aluminum of one of these B-29 American-made bombers. Their hope was that they would hear 
the roar of these big old American-made rotary internal combustion engines. That was their only hope. And here's the thing. As you follow Jesus through this broken world, sometimes you'll have a little sickness and it gets better. Or a little broken relationship and it gets better. And that's kind of like getting better food in the prison camp or a better doctor in the prison camp. And it's fine to hope for those. Those are fine. But there will be times when you go through suffering at such a depth that the only hope you have is someday Jesus is going to return in the clouds. Someday he's going to deliver me out of this. And if you're in that deep suffering right now, this message is for you. If you're not, then invite the Holy Spirit to kind of log this in your mind and spirit for when you go through the deep suffering. Only one hope that they'd be delivered out, and eventually that day came. So for 10 days, they had been victors, but they didn't know. Then they see one of these, and they hear the engines. And then these planes start dropping down these supply boxes, parachuting down. And these supply boxes are full of food, Hershey's chocolate, coffee, all things these guys had been without for three years. And here's a picture of some of these prisoners of war at a Japanese camp after these planes fly over and they drop these down. Now, this picture to me is so symbolic because this is us, right? We're in a world that is still really a prison yard spiritually, We've won, but we're still in enemy territory. And what does God do? What did Jesus teach us to do? Every day, pray, Father, give us today our daily bread. He drops down the bread that you need for today. These guys, there's stories at some of these prison camps as these supplies started dropping down of them forming conga lines and going around dancing. Well, that's kind of what happens when we all gather together to worship. We remind ourselves, hey, my life might be really broken. There might be a lot of evil in the world, but I gather with God's other people and I remind myself, myself, this, this isn't the end for me. I'm not home yet. I'm a victor in enemy territory. I also love the picture of the guy with the newspaper because you can imagine for these guys in this prison camp, all sorts of disinformation during a war and now the supplies get dropped down. They're thinking like, did we actually win? Maybe, we, maybe America just reclaimed this one island or the U.S. and the allies just got this one area. But they get these newspapers and they say, the newspaper headlines, Japan surrenders. The war is over. Do you see the parallels to the word of God? And that there are times when we've, we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good and we've experienced his joy and he's supplying our daily bread, but we have to look at the printed word and remind ourselves that Satan is defeated. And we have to gather together. It was natural when these guys, when these supply boxes dropped down, they didn't all grab a little bit and isolate. They gathered to celebrate. That's what we do when we gather to worship. 2 Corinthians 1 says this way, Jesus has delivered us from such a deadly peril. You're going to hear the already not yet in this verse. And he will deliver us, right? Has delivered us, past tense. Will deliver us, future tense. What do we do in the present tense? On him, we have set our hope. Have you ever set your hope? A lot of people are very casual with their hope. Set your hope on him. He will continue to deliver us. He has delivered us at the cross. He will deliver us when he returns. Today, set your hope that he will give you what you need today to get you through what you're going through. He will continue to deliver you. And when your suffering is at its worst, you have to remind yourself, this is the worst it will ever be for me in all of eternity. This is my lowest low for the next 10,000 years is right now. Hebrews 10 verse 23, let us hold unswervingly, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Why is the American church full of anemic Christians? Because the American church at large is full of people who they're not even holding on to this hope. They're just hoping for a promotion or they're just hoping for a raise. That's fine to hope for that. But if you want to make it through suffering, you've got to hold unswervingly to these kind of hopes, that this world's not our home, that he who promised is faithful. 
God keeps his promises. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Set your hope on him. Hold unswervingly to it. I have to believe there's someone in this room or online and God brought you into this moment for for just this word. Keep believing. Don't give up. Hold unswervingly. Believe that Jesus is king. When you have nothing else that you can hope for, look up to the clouds. Place your hope in him. Philippians 3, describing here's how a mature Christian lives, says this, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not in the United States, as great of a nation as it is. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. Why are we eagerly awaiting it? Because this world has pain and suffering and evil and injustice that won't ever be fully resolved until Jesus takes over as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So how can you find hope in a hopeless situation? Remind yourself you're an heir already, even though you've not yet taken your inheritance. You're a victor already, even though you're not yet home. And you're a citizen of heaven, even though you're passing through earth and you might feel like you're passing through hell on earth if you're going through suffering. Someday we're gonna be there with Christ. We're all gonna be there with all the other believers, so many who've gone before us, so many who've stood together with us at gravesides, who've sat with us in hospital waiting rooms, who've showed up and brought us meals and, and, and will be like those prisoners that you saw and we've got our little bit of food that's dropped down from above and we've got each other, but eventually those prisoners all went home to a hero's welcome. I mean, ticker tape parades and bands in the street and a whole nation celebrating and these guys would go home and their moms would cook them their favorite home-cooked meal and these guys, they fattened up and then what did they have? The, The greatest population increase ever, the baby boom, right? Your suffering will be eclipsed by future glory. That's the third anchor today. We hinted at it the first time we read Romans 8 verse 18. It's not just that your suffering will be worth it, it will be outweighed. This is hard to grasp, it's hard to believe, but I wanna encourage you to lean into believing this. God does not demean your suffering, he doesn't make light of it. He weeps with you. He upholds those who are crushed in spirit. He has felt what you feel when he went to the cross, he felt it all. And yet he gives you this promise that when you get to heaven, you're gonna look back and you're not gonna say, oh, all that terrible stuff was worth it. You're gonna say this glory outweighs it. I'll close by telling you a true story of a time when my wife Mel was laying in a hospital bed. She was shrieking in agony. Now, as a journalist, I had seen all kinds of human suffering. I'd seen immigrants coming across the border from Mexico, sneaking through the desert, um, all, all sorts of things sat with parents who had lost children in lots of different ways. I had never seen someone who I knew and loved so much in so much pain. Uh, Mel had a parasite. You know what a parasite is? It's something that feeds on its human host. And Mel had had this parasite for nine months, if you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Something that feeds on its human host for nine months. This was our firstborn here, Jack, (laughs) human parasite at the time. And, um, you know, we were young and we were, we were just trying to figure out life and um, had decided, Mel had decided to do an all natural pregnancy. No, uh, no pain relievers, no epidural. I don't think even Tylenol or anything. And, um, Okay, two things here. First, I just want to say this. Women, we all, and I speak on the behalf of all men, we just acknowledge you are the tougher species. Okay? It it is true. It is true. Having witnessed childbirth. Okay, now the second thing I want to say is this. I'm the youngest of four boys. All three of my older brothers had had kids. They had seen how it works. They did not warn me. They gave me nothing going into this. I had no idea what I was in for. And while what Mel went through is way more than I could understand, I was also traumatized. (laughs) Truly, I had no idea how all this works and what I was in for. Like, 
It does not look like a human when it, at first. <laughs> it's gray, and, and it's like the head is not even shaped like a head. It looks like jello. I literally looked at the birthing nurse. There's this gray, wrinkled mass, and I was like, what is that? There's no way that's my child. Like, what, what is that? There's, just, there's no preparation. Meanwhile, my wife is screaming like she's dying. I really am thinking, like, I'm pretty sure she's dying, and I'm pretty sure whatever this is isn't human. There's just no preparation for it. There's not. I'll just warn you guys. I mean, kids are worth it. They're a blessing from the Lord, but it's, it's, it's just, it smells. It's the whole thing. It's, it's bad. We got home, and Mel's recovering, and she says, I'm never doing that again. And I was like, yeah, let's not. (laughs) Let's not ever do that again. And then about two years passed. And (laughs) Mel's like, I think I'm ready for another one. I'm like, we're still not even sleeping through the night with the first one. And I had this question in my mind. Why would a smart, educated woman who's been through this horrific pain that I would never volunteer for, want to go through it again? Like, not be like, it's okay with me, but like, I want to sign up for this and do it again. Why would they do that? And here's the answer. This is really important. The lifelong joy of a child eclipses the excruciating temporary pain of childbirth. That does not belittle or make light of the pain of childbirth. And what God is teaching you and me today is this, the eternal glory that you're gonna have in the presence of God eclipses the temporary suffering of this world. He doesn't make light of your pain. He's felt it. And he suffered to free you from it. And when there's nothing else to hope for, he says, fix your eyes on me. Your rescue is coming from above. I will get you through this. Listen to these words from Jesus himself in John 16. He says, believers, you will grieve in this world broken by sin, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby's born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has born into the world. It was the biggest emotional whipsaw of my life. I went from literally thinking Mel was dying and I don't know what this thing is, to the nurses kind of scrubbing Jack off, setting him on her chest, and her tears of agony in a moment switched to tears of joy. And she's there showering love on him and praying blessings over him and declaring who he's gonna grow up to be in like in a moment from, from the scariest thing I'd been through in my personal life to like, wow. And Jesus says, this is a picture. Many of you can relate to that. This is a picture. So when your life is just nothing but pain, remind yourself it's going to lead to joy. Jesus says, so with you, now is your time of grief. Believer, This is the worst it will ever be for you in eternity. This is your birth pains right now. This journey through this wilderness, this prison camp of earth that Satan has contaminated and our ancestors have messed it up. But I will see you again, Jesus says. You've believed in him without seeing. You're blessed for that. You're gonna see him face to face. And then he says this, you will rejoice in that moment. All your pain will flip to tears of joy and no one will take away your joy. It's not just gonna be a a moment of joy. It's gonna be a thousand years of joy and then 10,000 years of joy surrounded by other followers of Jesus who are there in bodies that don't have cancer, that don't have pain, in a place with no locks for the doors, no courts, no hospitals, no crime, no pain sensors, And we'll get there, and despite all the pain of this world, we'll look back and we'll say, glory to God, it was all worth it. What a redeemer he is. 
So uh, I'd love it right now. If you guys want to just stand with me, I just want to pray over you. I know these are some deep truths. Father, I pray in this place, Lord, that you'd take each of us one level deeper in our trust of you, Jesus. Take us one level higher in us viewing you as over everything. Take us one level further in the already not yet that we would claim the already. We are victors, we are heirs, we are citizens of heaven, we are sons and daughters of the king. And Lord, when pain comes into our lives, from any source, when pain comes into our lives, help us hold to these truths, believing that even though we're not yet home, our victory is already sure. Even though we're not yet pain-free, our joy is already secure. And God, I just pray over every person, you see the hurts in their lives and you weep with them. Give them a faith today that looks up above the prison camp. We fix our eyes on the clouds, Jesus. We can't wait for your return. We're eager for it. Until then, God, will you use us to rescue as many as possible? We wanna bring armloads of people, thousands of people with us into your kingdom. You've left us here to follow your example, Jesus, laying down our lives to rescue others. So minister to us and minister through us that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, that revival would happen in our hearts and, and in this place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So God gives you a promise in this prison camp. The Holy Spirit is called a counselor and a comforter. And I wanna give you a moment as our worship team leads us, invite the Holy Spirit to be your counselor, your comforter. Invite him to make us uh, just a light in the darkness for hurting people to find Jesus. Well, if today's episode encouraged you or helped you in any way, we would invite you to keep following Jesus with us. We send out a daily video text devotional. You can receive that. And you can learn how to gather with us online or in person for our weekend services. All of that is available over at cp.news. That's the letter C, the letter P.news on your phone or desktop or tablet browser. Thanks again for joining us. And please join me again next week for the Connection Point Podcast.